0: If you have your Bible, turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, and reading through verse 26. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which said, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that as I stand to preach this morning, that you would help me just to be a mouthpiece of what you would have to be said to your people. Father, would you give me physical strength to stay in this morning. Would you give me clarity of speech and boldness of conviction? And Father, help me to preach your word accurately and in a way that honors your Son. And would you, by the power of your Spirit, apply this word to each of our lives so that we would be conformed to the image of your Son, made more like Christ in every way. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I want to look at this passage of Scripture under the simple heading of, I love to tell the story. I love to tell the story. One theological dictionary defines justification as the basis upon which God pardons and accepts sinners. Another theological dictionary defines it as a proclamation of guiltlessness or the removal of judgment for wrongdoing. It is as though you stand before the judgment throne of Almighty God, awaiting what judgment will be pronounced upon you. In a few moments, the judge of the living and the dead will render his verdict, either guilty or not guilty. And if you stand representing yourself without an advocate, without any evidence earning a verdict of not guilty, then you will be declared as guilty before the throne of God. With a single word, guilty. Guilty you will be sent to the the eternal prison cell of hell. But if you stand before the throne of God with an advocate standing in your place with the risen Savior who gave His life for sinners such as you and me, then you will receive a verdict of not guilty, not based upon the works of yourself, but based upon the works of your Savior. And so this is the doctrine of justification. This is where this comes into play it is based upon Christ's perfect sacrifice as He took on the burden of man's sin upon His own shoulders, bearing them to the cross at Calvary's uh, dark hillside, that that is the basis upon which you and I are saved. If you have been saved and brought near in Christ, it is not based upon your own works, but it is based solely and entirely upon the works of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And what we see here in James chapter 2 is that James is reminding us that if we have been saved, We will have a life that looks saved. We looked at that last week in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. That if you have been saved, you will look like you have been saved. You're going to walk differently. You're going to talk differently. You're going to think differently. You're going to act differently than how you did before you were saved. And James here is reminding us again that if we have been saved, we are going to have works that prove our salvation. James tells us, first of all, in our First point, the doctrine of sinners' guilt removed. The doctrine of sinners' guilt removed. He tells us first that we are going to have a different walk. We're going to have a different walk. Look with me at verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And so what James is telling us here is not that works and faith work together to justify us. Not that works and faith in God work together to save us. But that if we have been saved, if we have been justified or declared guiltless before the throne of God, that that guiltless verdict is going to do something within us that produces good works if we look at what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ at the cross at Calvary, we're not going to look at that with ambivalence. We're not going to look at that and say, I really don't care that much. I'm going to continue living how I want. But we are going to look at the cross of Christ and say, my sins that put Him there, my sins that drove the very nails into the hands of Jesus are sins that I want nothing to do with anymore. I don't want to continue holding on to the sins that Jesus died for, but I want nothing of them anymore. And so we're going to live in our faith. We're going to live in our belief that we have in Jesus. If we say we believe in Jesus, if we say we trust in Him, if we say we have faith in Him, and we trust in all that He has done, and all the work that He has done, and in the person who He is, then we are going to work as one who believes. We're going to live as one who has faith. And this is exactly what James is telling us. And it's not as though James is at odds with Paul. Paul tells us, if you go with me to Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, In other words, if he was made guiltless, if he had the guilt that was upon his shoulders, the condemnation that was upon him, if he had that removed by his own works, verse 2, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so what Paul tells us is that if Abraham was justified or declared innocent of his sinfulness against God by and through his own good works, then Abraham had every reason to to boast in himself. If we are saved by our own good works, by tilting the cosmic scale in our favor, by doing more good works than bad works, then we have much to boast about. We can say, look at me. I've punched my ticket to heaven. Look at how good I'm doing. I'm doing really well. There's no guilt on my shoulders. There's no burden of sin anymore. I've removed the condemnation that God had against me. I've overcome all of that on my own. Look at what I've done. Aren't I so great and so wonderful? I'm a pretty good guy. But Paul tells us that that's not what happens. That's not what happened with Abraham and that's not what happened with you if you were saved in Christ. Go with me to Romans chapter 9, just a few chapters later. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 15. Paul tells us this. He says, beginning in verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy." For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom He has called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles." And so in other words, what Paul is telling us and reminding us of is the very same thing that he said just a few chapters before in Romans chapter 4. That it is not ultimately dependent upon our will. It is not ultimately dependent and based upon our works or our decision or our strength or ability or wisdom that we are saved. But it is based solely upon the work of Christ upon the cross that we are saved. It is not based upon a little bit of faith in what Christ has done and the rest of it working and striving and trying to earn heaven, but it is based entirely upon what Christ has done at Calvary that we are given entrance into heaven. There was a story I heard of someone, the, the, the two thieves who were on the cross next to Jesus. And the one thief who uh, said, Surely you are the Son of God. Surely you have come to purchase people for your own. And Jesus tells that thief, that sinner on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And it is simply by faith, by trusting in Jesus, that this person who is upon the cross, who is guilty of his sins, has his guilt removed from one cross to the next. And as that man goes into the gates of heaven, Peter is there and he says, who let you in? And Paul is there and he says, how did you get into here? And John is there and he says, upon which basis have you come into this throne room? And the man says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And he looks at Peter and John and James and all of the people in heaven and he says, the man in the middle cross said that I could come. And so if you have been saved, it is not because you have done so much good in your life that Jesus has looked upon you and said, well, I have to save them now. I have to let them into heaven now. But if you have been saved, it is because of what Christ has done on the cross and because He has said, you can come to be with me for all of eternity. And so if you are in Christ this morning, you can rest in the fact that it is not because of your own good works and therefore your salvation cannot be lost by your works. But if you are saved in Christ, it is because of what God has done for you. It is because of what God has done in His own Son. By sending His own Son, His only begotten Son, to come and bear your burden of sin. To come and remove your guilt and place it upon His own shoulders. To remove what would weigh you down to the very depths of hell. And to take that and to place it upon His own perfect, and sinless and spotless shoulders so that upon the cross at Calvary His blood would be spilled and in His blood we could be washed white as snow. And James reminds us that if we have been saved, that we are going to look as though we have been saved. Just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at James chapter 1, verse 17. Go back with me there. James 1, verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And so every good and perfect gift that you and I have, including the gift of salvation, is from God. A gift earned is not a gift. It is a wage, an earning, a return on investment, a a net profit. But it is not a gift. Salvation is a gift that we have not earned. All that you and I have ever earned is wrath. All that you and I have ever earned is a wrong standing before God. But in Christ, Christ gives us a right standing. He is our advocate. He is our Savior. He is the Messiah who has come to fulfill all of the prophecies so that in Christ we could find salvation and in Christ alone. Think about it with me. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. You and I brought nothing to our salvation, but the sin that made our salvation necessary. The sin that made Christ's sacrifice upon the cross so necessary. And yet Christ has given us eternal riches. He has given those who have nothing to bring. He has given those who have nothing to exchange. Everything. In the book of Isaiah it says, Come you who have no money. Come, you who have nothing and make exchanges in the marketplace. Come, you who have nothing to bring to the cross of Christ and found salvation in Him. You have nothing to bring. And yet Christ has everything to give. We're going to have a different walk. The second thing that James shows us is that God has performed a divine work. A divine work. Since our good works do not earn our salvation, but simple faith and trust in Jesus is what saves. We have to ask, why this faith? What, why do we trust or believe in Jesus? Why do we believe in Him? Jesus has earned our trust. He has earned our belief. At the cross at Calvary, He has shown us His love for us. If we look at the Old Testament, we see that the Old Testament looked forward to the coming of Christ. The New Testament Gospels tell us of Christ's ministry on earth. The book of Acts tells us of what effect Christ has had upon people, that He saves people and then He erupts gospel transformation upon the the earth that is global. The epistles of the New Testament explain to us what Christ's work is and how it is applied to us. And the book of Revelation tells us that this very same Christ who came 2,000 years ago is coming again and we can look forward to His coming because what a glorious day it shall be when our Jesus we shall see. And all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is centered on this one man, on this one true and living God. All of Scripture is based upon, centered around and rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you take Christ out of the equation, then all of the Bible is meaningless, but all of it points us to Jesus. It is one big road sign that points our eyes to Jesus saying, look to Him. Stop looking to yourself. Stop trusting in yourself. Look to Christ. How can Jesus take addicts and make them into disciples? How can He make believers from atheists? How can He change hearts of stone to hearts of receptiveness? How can He make drunkards into studiers of God's Word? How can He redeem people from sexual immorality and impurity and make them pure? Two words. The cross. The cross is the meeting place of God's wrath and God's love. God's wrath poured out upon His only Son. And God's love pouring out through the blood of Christ so that we would be washed in His glorious love. We have a divine work done on our behalf in Christ. But here's our second point. Our second point is testimonial displays of sovereign grace retold. Look with me at verses 21 through 26. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the Scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now notice this. In verse 21, if we're not careful, we'll see Abraham justified by works. But what verse 22 says, it says, You see, you see, we see that faith was working with his works. What we see is that his works are evidence of his faith. His works are evidence of his trust in God. Go back with me to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. I want to revisit the story of Abraham. Genesis 22, verses 9 through 16. And here we find a story of Abraham moving from sorrow to singing. Genesis 22, verse 9. And they, being Abraham and Isaac, came to the place of God which God had told them. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him upon the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it will be provided." Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. We see here in this story that God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his only son upon an altar of worship before God. And God had a plan. It was not as though God had looked down and saw Abraham offer his son and then said, oh, I need to change my plan. I don't really want him to do what I've commanded him to do. But what God was doing was setting up an illustration for Abraham to see that Abraham had nothing to offer. Abraham would offer his son, but his son was not a sinless sacrifice. His son was not a perfect lamb. And so Abraham, as he's there, In verse 10 it says he stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But look at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. And notice that it's not just an angel of the Lord, but it is the angel of the Lord. It is Adonai. The Hebrew word here is Adonai, but Adonai called to him from heaven. And the word here is literally the word for Jesus. It is to say that Jesus called down to Abraham and said, Abraham... Abraham, and then he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. And then Abraham looks over into the thicket. He looks over into the brush by the altar upon which his son lie there. And he sees a ram. And God had provided. God had provided the sacrifice. And it would be upon that very same mountain so many years later, that God would provide the full and final sacrifice of His own Son. It would be upon that very same mountain that we would look and see the perfect Lamb that was there, the sacrifice that was there. And as Abraham raises his hand into the air, white knuckles wrapped around the knife, that he would plunge into his Son, I can only imagine the tears that would stream down his face. I can only imagine the sorrow that would fill his heart as he sees his son there and he is trying to be faithful to God and to obey God's command. And he sees his son there and he does not want to do what he's about to do, but he knows that God has commanded him. I can only imagine the sorrow that Abraham finds himself in here. Oh, but then I can only imagine the singing that comes from Abraham as he looks over And he hears the voice from heaven saying, do not slay your son. I have provided the sacrifice. I have provided the lamb. There is nothing that you must do, Abraham. I'm doing it. I'm doing it on your behalf. Look here and find the sacrifice. And in the very same way, maybe you're struggling this morning with some sorrow. Maybe you're in the depths of struggles. Maybe you're in the depths of uh, looking around and wondering where your sacrifice is. Where you're looking around and wondering where your salvation will come from. It looks as though you're at the bottom of the pit and you're surrounded by darkness. But all you can do in times of deep darkness is look up. You can't look around you because you're in the bottom of a pit and you're surrounded by darkness. But if you look up, you'll see the risen Savior. You'll see the one who was the perfect sacrifice on your behalf. You'll see that there is nothing that you can do to climb out or to clamor yourself out of the pit, but you look to Christ and Christ is reaching His hands down and pulling you out of the pit to save you. So maybe you're here this morning and you're sorrowful. Maybe you're here this morning and as the psalmist says, your tears have been your food day and night. Maybe you're here this morning and it seems as though depression is all that you have in your life but we can find salvation in Christ. We find our hope and our peace and our comfort, not in our own striving, not in our, not in our own working, but in Christ alone, in the sacrifice who was slain for our sins. One of mine and my wife's favorite songs says this, God of Abraham, you're the God of covenant and of faithful promises. Time and time again, you have proven you'll do just what you said. Through, though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. And let my heart learn, when you speak a word, it will come to pass. Great is your faithfulness to me. Great is your faithfulness to me. From the rising sun to the setting same, I will praise your name. Great is your faithfulness to me. So wherever you may be this morning, whatever you may be struggling with this morning, you can find rest in the fact that we have a faithful God. We have a God who is faithful and who has never left you for a moment. Think back over your life and you'll remember that God has never failed you yet and beloved, He won't start now. God is faithful. But there's a second story that we see here. There's a second story that James tells us again. Look with me at verses 25 and 26. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Turn back with me to Joshua chapter 2. Very quickly now, Joshua chapter 2. Verses 1 through 7. And what we'll see here is that Rahab would go from sales to salvation. She would go from sales to salvation. Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men a spy secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. And so God took this woman, Rahab, this woman who would have been looked at as defiled, as disgusting, as altogether sick and... Dangerous. God would take this woman Rahab who was in the business of selling her own body from her prostitution and would bring her out of that into the blessing of salvation. We see that Rahab was a prostitute. It says that Rahab was a harlot. Rahab was one whose house would have been warned against in Proverbs chapter Four and in Proverbs chapter 7, King Solomon is warning his son that there are certain houses that his son ought not to even go near. There are certain places that a son ought to steer away from. Such a place would have been Rahab's home. It would have been known that Rahab was one who was a harlot, that she was one who was busying herself with prostitution, that she was one who was dirty, one who should have been kept outside of the city. And yet God sends these men To the house of Rahab. He sends these men to the house of Rahab. To test Rahab. To warn Rahab. Of what was to come. And there Rahab would find her salvation in Christ. Rahab would go from sinfulness to salvation. From the grave to grace. From the bedroom of strange men. To the blessedness of the sovereign Messiah. And this Rahab was found in the depths of her sin. This Rahab was one who would have been looked at as altogether disgusting by earthly terms. And maybe you are here this morning dealing with sins. Maybe you're here this morning and you look at your own life, and it seems as though no one, can, nothing can save you. You look at your own sins and you say, "Nothing in my hands I bring." You look at your own sins and you say, "How can anyone save me? I've lived a life of sin for years and years and years." My sin is so deep that I'm too far gone. And Rahab would have looked like she was too far gone. Rahab would have looked like someone who was too deep into her sin. And yet God would send his messengers to her household. God would send his people to the very household that was warned against even going near. And from the very same lineage of Rahab would come the Messiah. Rahab would be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus himself. Rahab's family lineage would birth the very one who would come to save people such as Rahab. And in Christ alone, we can find salvation no matter how deep the sin No matter how vile you've been. No matter how far gone you may feel. It is in Christ alone that you can find salvation. As our singers come forward to lead us in a call of response this morning. I want you to examine yourself. Do you have a story to tell? Do you love to tell the story of Jesus and his glory? Has God so worked in your life that your life has become a testimony of His grace? The greatest story ever told is that Jesus Christ, in His sovereign work to save sinners from death and damnation, was finished upon the cross at Calvary. That Jesus, upon the cross at Calvary, said, It is finished. And in the finished work of Christ, in the finished work of the Jesus who paid paid it all on our behalf, you can be saved. And you can find rest and hope in that salvation for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are and for what you have done on our behalf. And Lord, we ask that you would help us not to grow cold or callous to your gospel, but that you would remind us every day of just how wonderful it is that you have sent your only Son to display your perfect love for sinners such as us so that we would be saved and adopted as your own children. Father, would you help us regularly and constantly to be reminded of just how amazing your grace is. And help us to walk in the newness of life which you have granted in your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.